Michael Tarosian is the proprietor of Lumiere Press, founded in 1986 in Toronto. First book was Edward Weston, Dedicated to Simplicity, A Reminiscence. And apparently that book embodies an entire aesthetic. So perhaps you could tell me what that aesthetic is. Well, I don't know if it embodies the entire aesthetic of the press, but basically um, it was the inaugural volume of what I entitled the Homage Series. I had a couple of years where I was working on curating an exhibition for the Public Archives of Canada. And in the evenings, I would ponder what I wanted to do with the press. I knew that once the project with the archives was over, then I would plunge right into this publishing phase of my life. And I realized that I had something that I wanted to say about photography. And I also felt that I wanted to pay tribute to the photographers who had influenced me. So it wasn't difficult at all for me to make uh, a list of uh, photographers that I wanted to do books on. And because Weston's centennial was imminent, it was obvious that uh, he would be the first one. I had kept a memoir by his youngest son, Cole, that had been published in a photography magazine when I was in my mid-teens. And it impressed me tremendously. I'd cut it out of the magazine. I'd kept it for decades. What impressed you about it? Just the fact that it was not didactic. It showed the uh, private side of a great artist. And somehow Cole was able to incorporate into this short profile the basic ethics and aesthetic substance of his father Mm -hmm. i thought it was very touching and i thought it was very intelligent and simplicity is a hallmark of of his yes i mean clarity he was he, he was actually talking about the combination of weston's work and life that it wasn't the simplicity of his work wasn't an affectation. He actually mm-hmm. lived in a cabin in California, a rather ascetic existence. Mm-hmm. And so he was all of a piece that what you saw in his work was also the way he lived his life. So it's uh, autobiographical. His, by looking at his photographs, you can, you can know him. Is that what you're saying? His photographs are very modernistic. They deal with abstraction, both visually and intellectually. Uh, it's it's very it was very avant garde work for its time, so I, I wouldn't say it's autobiographical in any meaningful way. But the way his son Cole positioned the idea of simplicity was simply that um, whether. He was sitting on his front porch having a glass of wine or in this very rustic dark room with a light bulb under the table just to keep the developer warm enough that he could use it (laughs) or out in the field with his camera. He tried to find the essence of things. And so all of this I found fascinating because it was a window into Weston that 
I probably was no more than 15 or 16 years old when I read it. I didn't know this uh, dimension of his life. And so, you know, I kept the uh, clipping for many years, and then I wrote Cole Weston a letter, and I asked his permission if I could publish this as a little book. And he wrote back and said, you must be confusing this with something my father wrote. He had no recollection of having written it. So I Xeroxed it, I mailed it off to him, and he sent it back to me with a note. He said, I totally forgot I'd written this. Yeah, of course you can use it. And I thought, my God, if if the author didn't even remember it, that means the rest of the world totally doesn't uh, know it exists. It, it's one of the few times in my entire life where I've published something that had already been published. But it was such a rare item that it, it uh, seemed like it was worth a rebirth in print. So that was the motivation for starting that series was to pay tribute to these great photographers who had shaped my consciousness of the medium. What about the aesthetic? We of the actual book itself. That's right. Like what, what, uh, what about him and what about the way you made that book? What does that say about your to tell you To tell you the honest truth, it was my first book and I had spent 10 years up to that point trying to give myself a very intense self-education of the book arts. I had actually gone to night school classes for three years to study bookbinding. But other than that, everything else I learned on my own. I had uh, procured a little printing press sometime in the late 70s, maybe 1980, I don't remember, and I had practiced and tested on that. I had set type. I had read extensively in the history of graphic design and the history of the book. But I really didn't have any kind of business model or template for what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to go to the library and ask to see a Kelmscott book. But you can't imagine actually making something like that because... You know, the uh, grandiosity of it, the uh, expense of it, I mean, it's just inconceivable. So what I did was I looked at small projects Mm. by people in the fine press community. And when I looked at books by Will Reuter or Glenn Galuska, they were doing small octavo books. And because if you buy, as I did, sheets of Mohawk letterpress paper... It cuts and folds down to the octavo format naturally. Mm. So I thought, well, the whole industry is conspired to make six by nine inch books. So that's what I'll start off with. I see. Okay. So I was not reinventing the wheel. Yeah. I was simply gravitating to what I was seeing around me. Of course, you know, the, the Mohawk letterpress paper was machine made, so it was affordable. The cover paper for the Weston book was Canson paper that I was able to get at an art store. And the cloth, I ordered it from a company in Boston. So all these things were not that obscure. Mm-hmm. And everything was off the shelf, so to speak. I made a lot of prototypes to come up with the palette, which was this smoky paper with an oatmeal cloth. I wanted something that I could use on every book in this series that would be neutral enough that 
if I use a different color of type on the title page and a different typeface and different illustrations, somehow it would all be harmonious. And I did have the idea that I was making a series because I felt that was very important to the marketing of the book. I didn't want to, that. Well, I didn't want to be a press that had no specific identity. I had gone to Ways Gooses and book fairs and all of these things where I saw people laying out on card tables what they'd done over the past 15 years. And in many cases, it was a kind of scattering of ideas. Right. And I thought to myself, well, they did a book of poems with lino cuts that they did, and then they did a short story in a completely different genre that's enormous with, you know, a lithograph or something. And the person who they attracted as a collector to the first one, they might have alienated with the subsequent book. Yeah, whereas in your case, they could go after a full set. Yes. But did you know how many you were going to do in the first place, or you just said this is part of a series? I wasn't sure. Right. You know, I didn't know whether over my lifetime there'd be 20 identically sized books or just five. I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. I did have in my mind that um, Aaron Siskind would be part of the series because I had discovered, when I discovered modernist photography in my mid-teens, Weston and Siskin were the two first photographers I learned about. And so I made up a short list. I mentioned a few minutes ago that I'd spent a couple of years curating an exhibition for the Public Archives of Canada, and that had been on the pioneering photographer Michelle Lambeth. So, of course, I wanted to do a book on him because I'd done all the research. I was steeped in the material. Um, so I had a, you know, I, I had a rather robust list of idols, and I figured that um, this would be a way of capturing the allegiance of an audience, by mm-hmm. because I believed that as a business template, people had this desire to complete what they started. Yep. That if it was too diverse. They would pick and choose, and you'd never really have a devoted collector base. And I didn't want to enter into this with the attitude that I was just testing the waters. Everything I've ever done, I've plunged into entirely with tremendous intensity. And so I figured that this would just be another module in my life. The big module is taking photographs, having exhibitions, another module is writing, another module is designing and producing books. But I would be equally serious about all of them and pursue them for the rest of my life. Let's wind back then. Uh, You yourself are a photographer, or you started off being very interested in photography. Your father helped you with that. Actually, um... My parents, I couldn't believe how um, accommodating my parents were. Um, in I, Toronto? And I grew up in Fort Erie, Ontario. And when I became interested in photography, my father partitioned off a part of the garage and made a little darkroom for me. Mm-hmm. So at the age of 13, I had my own chemical darkroom. I could develop film and uh, print the negatives. So, you know, I've, I've had a chemical darkroom for over half a century. 
bit like Walter Gretzky uh, setting up the little uh, ice rink yeah. in the backyard. <laughs> yeah, and you know, um, that's actually how I discovered modernist photography is when I when I set up the darkroom, I didn't have anybody around who could actually instruct me, so I'd simply uh, go to the library and get a how-to book. And so for several years, there was a, a book by Andreas Feininger that uh, called The Complete Photographer that I devoured. I read this thing inside out because it was like a little encyclopedia of photography. And I probably got more guidance and more practical help from that than anything else when I was 13 and 14 years old. Uh, but one evening, my father was heading off to the library and he said, do you want me to pick you anything up? And I said, well, you know, a book on photography. And I expected to get yet another how-to book. And he came back with a book on Edward Weston and a book on Aaron Siskind. And I had never seen anything like this in my life. I was absolutely overwhelmed by it. How, how so? Well, I think it would be akin to if you were a kid and you had some kind of musical aptitude, but all you heard on the radio was Herman's Hermits. And then one day somebody brought in an LP of Mozart or mm. Beethoven. And you realized there was this dimension to music that you didn't, you had not had access to before. Let's get specific with these two photographers, okay. though. You said you were blown away. You were oh, it was amazed. A, yeah, so, it was absolutely so overpowering. Define exactly what it was that, that they did that made you feel that way? Because the photography was not literal. All the photography I had seen up until that point described something. A pretty flower, a pretty girl, a sunset. They went out into the world, and the things they photographed were metaphorical. Mm. They weren't literal. They weren't meant to describe something as though a tourist was returning with a keepsake. Mm -hmm. They were reinventing the visual world as a new object. It was a two-dimensional, flat, black-and-white object that was a product of imagination, creativity, intellectualism. And you mentioned metaphor, too, and that's, yes. uh, that's poetry. Well, that's the thing. Um, the great photography of the 20th century really made this enormous leap. In the 19th century, people went out and they photographed pyramids, they photographed you know, the great landscapes of the American West. Wonderful photography. Curtis. Curtis, Mybridge. You know, there were many significant photographers in the 19th century. And some of the work is magnificent art. But I think what the modernists learned is that the camera is so proficient at recording things accurately that that in and of itself is not art. Yeah. So what Weston and Siskin... Exactly. Yeah. So what Weston and Siskin, and they weren't the only ones. I mean, Alfred Stieglitz was a, a great one of the giants of photography. And wasn't there a magazine that he was involved with? Camera work, which again was tremendously influential to me. But I think the reverberations of Stieglitz's work 
are still being felt today, quite frankly, a hundred years later. How so? Because he redefined the photographic vocabulary in so many ways. And even if he hadn't, he was just so magnificently talented. Just what, in terms of being able to choose the right subject or the right angle or the right process or what? The art of photography is, to a great extent, the art of composition. Mm -hmm. Because it's not like making a painting where you can do preliminary sketches, you can take the canvas, you can grid it off, and you can work out the geometry of the composition. In photography, you're essentially... This is not exclusive, because I can give you examples of Steichen's still lives where he labored over creating something. But for the most part, it is going into the chaos of the visual world and having this extraordinary discernment of how to rationalize it as a picture. And as soon as you've done that, you've already moved into an area of abstraction. Well, that's what we're trying to do as uh, as humans or creative humans is is, is to somehow put order or understanding on top of the chaos. To a great extent, that is the basic entry point and vocabulary of photography. And of course, you know, people like Siskin gravitated to non-representational subject matter. He'd photograph a piece of seaweed lying in the sand or a splotch of tar on the road. And this is hardly the bread and butter of pictorial photography. So seeing this for the first time was an extraordinary revelation to me. Really, all I can add to that is it defined photography in the 20th century. For for the entire 20th century, this is... I know there you can look at all sorts of subsets. And in my books, I've looked at people like Gordon Parks, who was a celebrated photojournalist, and my book deals with his photo essays in Life magazine. But I think his approach... There's no argument that it transcends the informational news context of life. It's poetic, and it is metaphorical. So these are all the things that uh, were a revelation to me. You know, I I think, I don't know if it was Sarkowski, but I had read someone comparing Edward Weston's late work, these brooding tidal pool photographs, from the West Coast, and comparing them to the late works of Beethoven. And I was very moved by that, that somebody took photography that seriously. Because you've got to keep in mind, when I was young in the 1960s, photography really had a marginal existence in the art world. Yeah. I mean, it's it's only been around for a couple hundred years, right, in in itself. Yeah. Well, now it's so, so pervasive. Yeah. It's, well, it's, photography is like by the night, by the mid seventies, it had started actually to be um, a desired commodity in the art marketplace. Mm-hmm. By the eighties and nineties, it was a, it was a done deal. It was like super popular. So I sort of hit the wave by starting my publishing program in nineteen eighty six. 
I was catching the beginning of the wave. Right. Photographica had actually finally become a defined area of antiquarian book collecting. So I was the beneficiary of the cultural shift. And it was also, I hate to say that it was, um, give myself too much credit for strategizing this, but it was a combination of my personal desire and my observation about the fine press publishing world that so many of the people in the fine press publishing world who are doing books on typography, doing uh, books on the book arts or poetry, their audience was just the fine press world. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, this is very limiting. So what I did was I wrote to every fine press that I could find out about. I, you know, I picked their directories at the library and things like that. So I wrote to everybody around the world, whether they were Italy or Australia, didn't matter. And I got catalogs from dozens upon dozens of places. And one of the most disheartening things was, in most cases, 50 to 75% of their title list was still in print. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had they had back lists that were yeah, they, they filling were, their they weren't selling homes. Out, yeah, they weren't yeah. selling out of anything. And I thought this was a horrible idea. <laughs> this was a horrible business model. And so my idea was, instead of making fine press books for the fine press audience, I would make fine press books and bring them to... The art world, the world of Brilliant. photography. Yeah. So I wanted to escape the gravitational pull of this very small black hole <laughs> and actually get out into the big world. Right. And as you put it, or someone did, the book is the medium of photography. Well, this, this is something that I arrived at this conclusion very early. The album. Well, I didn't. I don't think when I was a kid that I actually was art historically um, aware enough to uh, have appreciated that the book actually started out in the 19th century as albums, like the Julia Margaret Cameron albums and things like that. I was responding simply to the fact that the my only access to photography was through books in my lifetime. I, I don't believe there's ever been an exhibition of Alfred Stieglitz's work in Toronto. During the centennial of Weston's birth, a large show was toured internationally. I don't believe it came to Canada. So there is a lot of material out there that you could wait your whole life to see and never see it. Uh, except on online, which, what? Well, it, that didn't me. exist when I was no, young. No, of course. So yeah. my my only access to this stuff was books. Yeah. And it that certainly shaped my conviction that the book was the medium of photography. And as I, you know, got older and I learned more about the history of photography, then I understood that right out of the gate, one of the very first guys who invented photography, what was the very first thing he um he did. He made a book. So uh, Fox Talbot. Uh, yes, Fox Talbot. And so this had been something that had been in the DNA of the medium mm-hmm. right from the very beginning. And as I've explained 
I think that photography is more sympathetic to the book than almost any other medium because you can take a photograph and with the technology we have today, you can make a reproduction that is a facsimile that replicates the original. If you're doing a book on sculpture or painting and you want to do a book on, you know, a David painting that's 18 feet across, what what you're putting into the book is a reference. If you are doing a book on Brancusi's sculpture that's 12 feet tall, what you're putting into the book is a reference. Mm-hmm. But you can actually take a photograph, as I did in the Steichen book, and reproduce it more or less at the original size, the original surface texture, the coloration... And you feel as though you are experiencing the real object. So that that's one of the reasons. Now, you know, somebody could say, well, woodcuts are very good. And that's absolutely true also. Yeah. So it's not only photography, but certainly I think there's a very convincing argument that photography is perfectly suited for the printed page. And yet, you, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't say that you're unique in what you've done with Lumiere Press, but there sure aren't that many fine press presses that, that focus almost exclusively on photography in the world. I don't think there's anybody who's approached it the way I do. Mm-hmm. You've taken the best of, of both. Well... It's it's partially working to your strength and partially working to your interests. Mm-hmm. Photography was what I naturally gravitated to. And why did you do that? I, I'm not really sure. It was just something that the minute I discovered it, I realized I had an affinity for it. And it's, you know, these are things that can't be taught. No, no, no. We've mentioned some of the uh, f- uh, photographers who uh, who you, uh, I don't think, idolized is too strong a word. Uh, what about uh, fine press, fine presses, fine uh, bookmakers, past and present? I'd have to say that I've been inspired and motivated and taught by almost everything I've seen, to tell you the truth. But there must be some some people or that you're well certainly i you know when i started out i actually saw my very first printing press when i was introduced to glenn galuska he lived in a little house down on harvard street just near u of t and i had a little project that i wanted to do this was in the mid-1970s and i needed a title page So a friend of mine said, well, I know a guy who can set some type. Maybe he'll help you out. So I phoned him up. I went over to his house late one evening in the middle of a snowstorm. I walk in the house. He has a Vandercook Universal One printing press in his kitchen. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. (laughs) And he showed me. That's dedication. It was was fabulous. And he was an extraordinary designer, an extraordinary typographer, a master printmaker. And I was so impressed by what he was doing. I thought that if you wanted to make books, you had to have a factory or something. And here was this fellow Mm. in his kitchen making these magnificent projects. 
Well, that's why they call it private press, don't they? I mean, it's really the the uh, inspiration of one person. Absolutely, yes. It's the consciousness, it's the skill set, it is the intellectual vista of an individual. It's not a committee, it's not a board of directors, yeah. and it's, I would say, immune to the feedback of the marketplace. Um, you know, I've never done a book on a photographer because I was told there was a critical mass of collectors who would buy that book. Mm-hmm. I do the books that I want to do. But having met Glenn, then he became uh, my go-to guy for questions, and I pestered him relentlessly. Uh, I'm sure I irritated him more often than not, but I admired what he was doing so tremendously. And so he started showing me what to look at. He would show me books on Bruce Rogers. He would show me books on Dwiggins. He would introduce me to typefaces by Zaff. And he really pushed me in the right directions. And of course, by this time, I'd been introduced to Stan Bevington at Coach House. And then I started doing the same thing with Stan. I started hanging around with him and peppering him with questions. Well, and he's such a genius with technology, isn't he? He he, he sees something, he wants to replicate it or do, yeah. do something with it, change it, improve it. It's it's extraordinary. Stan is really uh, remarkable in a lot of ways. And his patience over the last 40 <laughs> years has been beyond belief. And um, So did you do a lot of drugs with Stan or not? No, never. No, okay. no that, I've never done any drugs. <laughs> no, I mean, I used, I used to go to Glenn with technical problems, and I'd go to Stan with design problems. And Stan was always um, very gentle. You know, I took him one design for one book, and it was it was just a preliminary idea. It was really quite uh, abysmal. And he looked at it and he said, "I don't even know how to respond to this." And it was like, "Just go off and try again, and you know we'll see what happens." But I, you know, I didn't have any kind of education in this. You did uh, and you didn't. You you learned from two of the best. Yeah, it was it was really a phenomenon really. that, that yeah. these two guys were within a couple blocks of each other. And that, um, you know, they were willing to humor me. You know, they, I don't think they had any idea that I would plunge into it with the intensity and conviction and dedication that I did. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, at that moment, I was just somebody who was pestering them all the time. But uh, certainly, um, to answer your question about what kind of uh, presses and what kinds of books were influencing me, well, it was what I was being introduced to largely through them. Mm-hmm. And once I had some idea of what the lineage was, then I would visit antiquarian book dealers. As you probably know, these guys love to talk. So it's a great resource just yeah. sitting there for you. So I'd go in and they knew that who in particular? I remember I don't remember his name, but there was a guy who had bought like an old brownstone of sorts in the old part of Buffalo. And this was in the, it was in the 70s when everybody had fled the center of Buffalo for the suburbs. Uh So he was in this like sort of little burned out neighborhood. 
And he said, you know, that the reason I'm here is I was able to buy this entire building for $35,000. Good for him. Yeah, yeah, and he had filled it top to bottom with books. Uh-huh. And I can't remember how I found out about him, but I would visit him on a semi-regular basis. Mm-hmm. And he had, you know, bought uh, collections. So he had things like uh, the Dove's Press books and things like that. And he knew that I didn't have the ability to buy anything. Yeah. But it didn't matter. He, you know, he didn't have uh, street traffic. So when I showed up... He put out know, a catalog, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you know, he couldn't have the door open to, to people in that neighborhood. So, mm. you know, when I showed up, I'd be there. It would just be the two of us. Mm. And he was very gracious. And he would let me look through anything. And I guess if you you made the effort to go all the way to Buffalo from here, well, not that it's that far. No, it's not still, that far. The fact that you went over there, you probably spent hours and hours before you came back. I would imagine. Oh yeah, I'd spend an afternoon with the guy. Yeah, and you know, I I probably I saw I saw uh, quite an array of books in his mm-hmm. collection, and he would show me things that were special bindings. It was really remarkable. And then, of course, you know... Did you try to model yourself after any particular... No. And you just sort of got idea, general ideas, and then you sort of determined whatever your your challenge was, you would apply whatever you'd seen? When not? I started, I actually erroneously believed that book design was something akin to coming up with a mathematical formula to... Uh, arrive at a proof of something and i thought if you knew quantum mechanics or you you know you knew geometry or you knew all these things then you could arrive at the proof and so the first two or three books i did were all based on formulas that i'd read about in design books mm. about margin width and thumbage uh, you know the yeah. the um number of characters per line for optimum legibility and letting and things like this. And after I'd made a couple of books like that, I sort of thought they look conventional and it didn't interest me. So I abandoned all of that. And I decided that what I needed to use was my own instinct because What I had learned is that I had spent many years taking photographs and making prints. And I didn't have any insecurity about how I composed pictures and how I printed them. So I thought, well, why would I worry? Why would I be inhibited when it comes to the design of a book? And I started to realize that everything I had learned in photography was transposable to the book. Printmaking in the darkroom, understanding tone control, understanding how to rigorously um, replicate something in additions is exactly what you're trying to do in a book. When you're arranging a title page and you're looking at the various weights and balances across a rectangle, a rectangular sheet of paper, that is largely what you're doing when you're making a photograph. So after these fledgling attempts where I tried to imitate the great books, uh, I just decided to use my own good taste 
and select typefaces that I felt were perfect for the project. Glenn had uh, directed me to a book called Printing for Poetry. Um, I can't remember the name of the author, somebody in Cal- who had a private press in California. And he talked about putting together a typographic library that represented different historical periods so that you would have a transitional face and an old-style face and a modernist face and all of this kind of thing. You'd mm. have all your bases covered mm. so that when a project was presented to you, you could divine what era best suited it with the typeface. And so it was Not a little... just the era, certainly, though. The, I mean, you, you, that's what you want, I suppose. You want to replicate the zeitgeist? To some extent, it's, it's, it's partially a representation of the Bruce Rogers idea of the elusive design that you try to match the design to the historical period of the literary content. This fellow who wrote this book uh, on poetry wasn't being quite as dogmatic as that. But it was, a, it was just a general sensibility of how to get out of the gate, how to push in the right direction. So mm-hmm. I found that very interesting. I guess, too, just learning as much as you can about a particular typeface, like who designed it, why they designed it, where it was designed, all of that sort of history it sort of percolates into the, the, the choice, I guess, right? Well, actually, if you want to learn about a typeface, the best way to do it is to compose an extensive text on the intertype machine. Because unlike today where you can take 100,000 words and simply flow them into a design on the computer, when you're doing a book on the intertype machine, you start with the first character and you input every character of the book with every space and every punctuation until you get to the end. And as you're casting it, as you're inspecting the slugs to make sure you're getting a good face, as you're proofing it on the press to make sure there are no typographic errors and you're examining it under a loop, believe me, you learn a lot about that typeface. Mm -hmm. You are steeped in its architecture, its design, the weight of the strokes. By the time you finish the book... (laughs) Uh, you're probably you, sick and tired of that damn type. No, no, actually, it's okay. quite the opposite. Okay. By the time I'm finished, I am awestruck that somebody actually designed this thing mm. so magnificently. Do you have uh, any favorite typefaces? Or are they, does it vary from purpose to purpose? I'm or? infatuated with whatever I'm working on sure. at the moment. Many's the time, uh, you know, I'll do a book and... It, I'll look at the sheets and I'll say, wow, if I use this one typeface for every book for the rest of my life, I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. And then I start the next project and I think, actually, this typeface <laughs> would be much right. better. Right. So, you know. You're in love with your current. Uh, yes. You use the tape recorder, I notice, mm-hmm. uh, as I do, of course, or whatever you want to call it, because you, you uh, with living subjects, you engage them in 
deep conversation, lengthy conversation, mm -hmm. you must establish a pretty profound relationship with these photographers. For a short period of time, yes. It it's actually is amazing to me. There's, there's certain cliches about artists that you see in movies or in books about sort of maniacal people, mm. um, oftentimes uh, lost in uh, a mist of despair and self-abuse or something. The great artists I've met have no ego because they know what they have contributed to human culture. They're satisfied. Mm. They've got no insecurities. No, they have no insecurities. They are incredibly gracious. I that's, want... that's nice that you haven't run into an asshole. I mean, I guess you wouldn't, or maybe you wouldn't <laughs> want to, to do a book on someone who, after you got to know them, I don't know. No, I've, I've, been, I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, I, I've read stories throughout my entire life about uh, somebody admired a famous football player or something, and then he found out he was a jerk. He, you know, this is a person who runs up and down a field. But the people I engage with are people who spent their life in an intellectual pursuit. Is photography an intellectual pursuit? Yes, it is. Yeah, there's a temptation to... Um, I suppose now when I think of it, sorry, is that, uh, you know, people just flash off so many different shots that... They, they can in such a short time, and they just pick the one that they like the best. I, I, think, I think you've made a very good point, because it would be like saying the guy down the street built a garage. Is that architecture? No, it's a structure. He needed a utilitarian thing, so he built it. And then, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright built a building. He's an architect. Mm -hmm. So you have to constantly make distinctions. And because we live in a 10 zillion photograph a minute universe, you cannot make a generalization about photography and say it's an intellectual pursuit because overwhelmingly it is not. It's a reactive, impulsive pursuit. So what I'm talking about is the fraction of 1% of the photography that's ever been created. I'm talking about something very rarefied that does not represent almost any other notion or use of photography. You know, more photographs have been taken of products like cereal boxes and automobiles than have ever been taken in the pursuit of art. It's a, it's a very fine wavelength in the whole galaxy mm -hmm. of photograph photographic activity. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit, it reminds me a bit of uh, these days anyone can be a critic. They can write a review on Amazon and you, you see thousands of them. But right. uh, the question is, is their opinion worth more than, than a trained professional critic? Well, we live in an age where connoisseurship has become a dirty word. Mm. Mm -hmm. The idea that you would actually spend decades of your life learning about something. Mm -hmm. I, I do find this sort of comical in a way because consumers are very knowledgeable. People will go and look at a car and they'll talk about the displacement of the engine and the kind of transmission and the kind of disc brakes or whatever. They, they have all this esoteric knowledge about the 
horsepower and the output. Mm-hmm. Somebody else will go to a linen store and they'll talk about the thread count and they'll mm-hmm. they'll talk about all these esoteric things. But then you show them art, and they don't they can't tell watercolor from acrylic from oil painting. And yet they have an opinion about mm-hmm. the art. So the idea of connoisseurship has pushed out into the area of consumerism, but it has abandoned the cultural artifacts, strangely enough. I don't see, broadly speaking, in this Twitter universe where everybody has an opinion, where these opinions are particularly astute when it comes to art. Well, and again, when you're dealing with a professional critic, they've done the reading, they put things in context for you. But when you're dealing with an amateur photographer who's able to to capture, you know, so many images in such a short period of time, it seems to me that the role of the of the professional photographer is threatened with all of this. You know, I I can't make a prediction, but um you know, we may be at the end of some cultural cycle. I mean, things don't last forever. You know, your books, your books will last for a, for a long, long time, though. I hope so. <laughs> but, you know, there, there's no uh, guarantee that in uh, 20 or 30 uh, years, uh, photography as we know it will be recognized and appreciated it. Um, in the context of the kind of conversation we're having. You know, I'm not too worried about that because I almost feel as though perhaps I'm like someone who found their allegiance to classical music and they decided that they weren't going to listen to anything, you know, after Mahler or something. They were going to start with Bach and end with Mahler and anything else that existed was fine with them, but it wasn't critical to them. And there are a lot of people who sort of find their um, galaxy and they're deeply interested in it, whether, you know, it's ancient Persian art or something. And they don't look, they don't, they don't look at contemporary art that Mm. much. I try to be as open-minded as possible, but when it comes to photography, the modernist photography of the entire 20th century is what really fascinates me. How many books have you produced in total? I think uh, 22 or 23, something like that. Any favorites? Well, they're all your children, and, and you love them in different ways. Usually what happens is um, I'm enthralled with whatever book I just finished simply because of the euphoria of having finished another book. <laughs> Because you you do spend, how much time do you spend on it? Well, when I first started, I could do a book in about nine or ten months or something. But as they've become much more ambitious, it's gone from months to years. Yeah. And, I, you know, I decided at the very beginning that the only trajectory in a creative life that was worth having was one of ever-increasing uh, ever ambition and ingenuity and change so every time i do a book i try to incorporate something i've never done before i try to make it more ambitious in um, some aspect of either the design or the research 
Let's look at your most recent book then. Uh, answer those questions about this this great book. Well, certainly, it's undeniable that the new book, The Ballad of Soames Bantry on the work of the photographer Saul Leiter, is the biggest book. That's incontestable. Physically. Physically, mm-hmm. yeah, it's the biggest. It's about what? I think it's about eight and a half by eleven and a half. Eight it's and only eight and a half inches. Well, you're looking at the slipcase. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So it's probably not like nine inches or something. Yes, nine, yeah, nine. nine inches exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it's like nine. But what you're holding is like nine by twelve. Right. In right. the slipcase. Okay. And so, what is the most? Uh, what's the ambitious thing you've done with this? Well, with this, I essentially wanted to tell Saul's life story. And I wanted it largely through his own voice. So what my assistants and I did was we gathered up every document about Saul. We got every interview that had ever been conducted, every public lecture, and we transcribed over 100,000 words of material Plus, we add to that printed material until we had a hundred, I'd say over 130,000 words of raw material for me to edit. And I must have spent the better part of a year going through this and shaping it into a series of monologues of Saul telling his life story. Then I interspersed this with interviews that I conducted with people who had known him. And then a few people actually independently wrote their own reminiscences, including um, uh, Robert Benton, who was very who had known Saul from the 1950s, and Benton went on to uh, be a movie director and screenwriter. He won three Oscars for Bonnie and Clyde and Places in the Heart and all this. A very distinguished, uh, wonderful man. And he, so he wrote a little piece for me. But the lion's share of the material in the book is derived from this massive research that we did. That was the, this the most ambitious undertaking of that kind? Certainly one of them. I mean, researching Edward Steichen was intense by virtue of the fact that Steichen was, along with Stieglitz, probably they were the two most important and influential photographers of the 20th century. Mm. Steichen not only became instantly famous when he was 21 years old, he dominated... Like that? Because he was so conspicuously and supremely talented. He just blew everybody's mind. He left Milwaukee went right to Paris, and, you know, you read the literature on him. The next thing he's... You've got all this covered in your book? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he's uh, visiting Gertrude Stein. He's... Seems uh, like everyone visited Gertrude Stein and Ezra Pound. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he's uh, hanging out with Picasso. He's going horseback riding in the Bois de Boulogne with Matisse, uh, he's got, he's got Brancusi coming out to the summer house. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He just plunged in to the absolute core of the art world instantly, and then he went off and transformed photography uh, through his modernist work. Then he returned to the United States 
and had a long career in, in the commercial world. And then he ends up becoming the director of photography at the Museum of Modern Art. So there's there's nobody who had such a long, comparable career where mm-hmm. he influenced every facet of every aspect of the genre. It was it's it's really mind blowing. That sounds like a terrific book. It was it was. Is a, it sold out, or can we can anyone still get it? Uh, you can get it through antiquarian dealers, but uh, the Steichen book sold out very quickly. Yeah. I mean, it was it was really shocking. Well, happily, uh, happily shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was very gratifying, okay. tremendously gratifying. So, how can people get uh, this book through uh, through the under, understanding that this is this is a book that you have to invest in? Yeah, this this is available. Th- we sell 99% of the books directly through the Lumiere Press website. Okay. That's Lumiere, what, dot com? Yes, LumierePress.com. Okay. So you've finished that. What are you working on now? Anything? Or you were just relaxing? The, no. The day I finished that book, I started work on the next book, which is um, a book on the history of Lumiere Press. Isn't that great? So yeah. It's, be- uh, okay. I love those are bibliographies in effect. Well, the whole impetus for this is that um, a year from now, essentially, uh, the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library at the University of Toronto will be mounting a Lumiere Press retrospective exhibition. Wonderful. And they also will be establishing the Lumiere Press archive at the Fisher. So to commemorate both the archive and the exhibition, I wanted to do a book. Perfect. When does the exhibition kick off? Sometime in September 2019. Okay. I don't know that they have a specific date. But that's what's occupying me as like a full-time job right now, is just trying to do that book. Well, listeners know where to find you then. Toronto at the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> rare book Fisher Rare Book Library. That's where that's where my archive is now. They took away eighty five boxes of material containing all of the prototypes, all of the manuscripts, all the correspondence, um, probably a hundred plus hours of uh, cassette tapes. It was I I meticulously preserved everything from every project throughout my life. So. Uh, you know, I can tell that meticulousness by just looking around at your workshop here. It's so well organized and immaculate compared to many that I've been in. Well, you caught me on a good day. If we were in production, yeah. it, it would be um, a little bit different. But I, when you've got a modest size space, you have to be very organized. Otherwise, it just runs away from you. And Fisher's a great library here. Uh, it's, it's so great that your material is there. I, I love the place. I mean, physically, it's a it's an absolute cathedral to the book, and in terms of its cultural importance, it's without peer in the country. So, yeah, yeah. I'm very very pleased about how this is all turned out. Well, I'm very pleased you've agreed to talk to me. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. I've been speaking with uh, Michael Cherosian, the proprietor of Lumiere Press in Toronto on a beautiful, sunny 
morning in mid-October. Thanks again. Thank you.